You are listening to StarQuest Radio. I am Kurt Rimke. Since this is our first episode, I'll take a minute here to get you up to speed on who we are and what we'll be up to with this show. StarQuest Radio will be an ongoing collaboration between myself and the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society that aims to inspire Fort Wayne and surrounding communities to look up into their local night sky with a new sense of understanding. We will talk about the space of your everyday, the space that is in your backyard, the space that you see in your observable night sky. In each episode, I will talk with a member from the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society as they share updates on current space news, current and future goings-on of the society, but most importantly, information on what you can look forward to see in your night sky that month. After I talk with the member, I will then choose a topic that they highlighted in our interview and craft an exciting narrative-driven piece that will expand on that specific topic. So without further ado, let's go into our first episode of StarQuest Radio. All right, so I am sitting here with Mark Anderson from the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society, and he is actually the observatory's director. How's it going, Mark? It's going pretty well. It's been a busy summer. Oh, yeah. You just had the solar eclipse, and I know you were at the library um, plaza showing people how to check that out. And then we had the grand opening for our observatory in May. So, uh, like I said, it's been a very busy summer. So you're the director of the StarQuest Observatory. Could you give a brief overview of exactly what that is? Uh, It's been a dream for a long time. Uh, The society has been at different places. We were out at Fox Island for a number of years. We had a a dome, Um, but it became obvious as the light pollution and the trees uh, grew taller. It just wasn't the spot that we thought we could be long term. We found the spot out in Jefferson Township park and the the old dome fell apart so we needed to build something to house especially the rj telescope the 16 inch telescope Uh, and so it's been in the planning for years and we finally have it completed uh, and i think it meets everybody's expectations so you're out there every saturday night that's a clear sky every saturday night from the beginning of april from the first of april to the end of november if it's a clear night we're out there uh, showing the public it's free of charge just come out and we'll show you what's in the night sky What exactly does the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society do other than um, the observatory? I know you have like a little library there for members and things like that, but what do you do um, out in the community? Uh, A number of things. One of them, of course, was the eclipse where I was here at the library with a couple of scopes. And uh, uh, then we also do uh, star parties for people. Uh, We'll sometimes travel. Uh, Gene Stringer and I did a uh, series of star parties for the Girl Scouts. So we did one out at Camp McMillan up by Huntertown. We did a number of them up at Camp Logan by Syracuse. Uh, It's a lot of fun to do, and and it's getting people interested uh, in uh, what's in the night sky. We are a 501c3 educational nonprofit, and we see ourselves as educating the public to, to what's going on in space and what's up in the night sky. Cool. And now we have StarQuest Radio. Yes. (laughs) That that works very well. So let's just go ahead and get into what maybe people can see in their night sky here in Fort Wayne in the next month or so in surrounding areas. Well, probably the showpiece is Saturn. uh, And uh, Saturn's uh, a little past the meridian, headed west. uh, But we can still get a very good look at Saturn. Unfortunately, Jupiter is so low in the west, you can't even get a good look at it. 
Uh, people love to look at Saturn. The, the one word everybody uses when they uh, look at Saturn is wow, because it looks just like the pictures. Uh, and so uh, that, that's kind of the showpiece. Uh, there are also a number of deep sky objects. Of course, if there's a moon up, we can, with our telescopes, uh, look at the moon. Uh, people need to understand that the worst time to come out the, with, to the observatory is full moon because you even can't look at the moon very well and it provides light pollution for the deep sky uh, things. There are a number of deep sky objects we look at. Uh, one of the showpieces that's almost straight up right now is the Great Globular Cluster in Hercules, M13, a huge ball of stars with chains of stars going off of it. Uh, it's one of those objects you always look at. Uh, not too far from that is the Ring Nebula. Uh, again, one of those showpiece uh, objects that you can look at. If you go into Cygnus the Swan, you'll find uh, the Dumbbell Nebula. You can find a beautiful double star, Alberio. And of course, this time of year, when you look directly south, you see the teapot, which is Sagittarius. And there are a lot of objects in there. Globular clusters, a lot of nebula, the Lagoon Nebula, the Swan Nebula. Uh, there are a, a lot of things to uh, see in the night sky. Uh, generally, people come out and, and uh, we show them what we can in a period of time. But if uh, they wanted to stay, we could probably spend the whole night with them showing them things in the night sky. Do you have any tips on how to find some of those if they are not out at the observatory? You know, if you have a small telescope and you want to uh, find some of those objects, you're probably going to need a star map. And if you go into Sky and Telescope's uh, website... They sell what, what they call their pocket star map, and I've used that for years. And for most people, just looking at what they can in the night sky, that will suffice. And it'll show all the Messier objects, the NGC objects, and give you a, a pretty good road map how to get there. Uh, I spent years star hopping. That's how I learned. But when you do outreach, you get one of these telescopes with a computer in the hand control, you align it up, and then just you tell it what you want to see, and it goes there. And then it tracks, and that's what works so well for outreach because you don't have to move it at all. People can just line up and person after person uh, take a look through the scope. And you have some pretty serious scopes there. I know I, well, I would, you, the big one I've looked at the moon through, and as much as I've seen the moon, it, it was something incredible. I mean, it, it takes up the whole eyepiece, and you can't even see anything to the sides, and you see all the detail and... Yeah, it's a, it, the, the big scope, the Richard Johnson, is a 16-inch Mead scope, weighs about 250 pounds. We have it equatorially mounted, and uh, on good nights, uh, it can make you feel like you're in orbit over the moon. Wow. Okay, well, tomorrow is a big day for Saturn, speaking of Saturn. Um, what do you know about the Cassini mission? And I know it's been a much longer mission than when they first put, the, put it into space. Uh, and it's done some wonderful science. Uh, I think uh, it has uh, enhanced our understanding not only of Saturn, but Saturn's moons. And I think it's also given us the uh, possibility that life exists maybe even on some of those moons uh, deep in the oceans. Uh, Cassini's done a wonderful job, sent back incredible pictures. One of my favorites is a picture of Earth you see through the rings of, of uh, uh, Saturn. Uh, but its life is about over. The batteries are about dead. So what are you going to do with a satellite when it's about dead? Well, one of the things they can do and still get some science is run it right into the planet. Uh, so they're going to send it down into the, the gas of the planet where, where it will rest. So StarQuest Radio is actually more about local space news, but is there any uh, recent national space story that's caught your attention? Uh, 
I, I do know that uh, recently we had uh, an asteroid that came fairly close, mm. it, an asteroid with the name Florence, uh, and that if you knew, again, if you had the star map, you could uh, locate Florence and it moved fast enough, you could probably over a period of time see the fact that it had moved. Uh, and uh, I know some of our guys have been trying to uh, look at Florence and of course all of us were involved somewhere with the eclipse. Uh, which was probably the biggest news. And then we'd like everybody to know that we're going to get our turn again in 2024. Uh, when that eclipse comes uh, out at our observatory, we will actually have moments of totality. On the south end of 469, there will be moments of totality. My wife comes from just north of Richmond, Indiana, and down there they'll have four minutes of totality. Unfortunately, it's in April, April 8th, and our April weather is a little you know, you can't count it as much as you do August weather, a little iffy. Uh, but if we have a good day, that will be a spectacular event for us here. Great. Well, thanks again, Mark, for coming in. I really appreciate it. And I know that I'll probably hear from you again. And in the future episodes, we will be hearing from other members of the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society. So uh, thank you very much. See you next time. Sounds good. As Mark Anderson mentioned in our interview, the Cassini spacecraft mission is ending with an epic conclusion the morning after this episode is released. It will take a fatal dive into Saturn Friday morning at around 7 a.m. in Fort Wayne's time zone. Because of this, I have decided to create a piece that serves as an audio overview of Cassini's mission. Please enjoy this aural trek to Saturn and all of Cassini's stops along the way. Two one and liftoff of the Cassini spacecraft on a billion mile trek to Saturn. We have cleared the tower and the Cassini spacecraft is on its way to Saturn. On October 14, 1997, the Cassini orbiter launched out of Cape Canaveral, Florida on a Titan IVB Centaur. All systems go. Packed with state-of-the-art instruments, the orbiter has been able to study Saturn and its rings and moons. Using its composite infrared spectrometer, imaging science subsystem, ultraviolet imaging spectrograph, and its visible and infrared mapping spectrometer, Cassini has understood the electromagnetic spectrums of Saturn and its relative astronomical bodies. Cassini has also been studying the dust, plasma, and magnetic fields around Saturn using its Cassini Plasma Spectrometer, Cosmic Dust Analyzer, Ion and Neutral Mass Spectrometer, Magnetometer, Radio and Plasma Wave Science, and the Magnetospheric Imaging Instrument, or MIMI. The MIMI is actually the first instrument ever designed to produce an image of a planetary magnetosphere. The magnetosphere, in case you're wondering, is the region just outside of an astronomical body that is primarily controlled by the body's magnetic field. With MIMI's three sensors, it detects protons, electrons, ions, and the neutral atoms in the plasma around Saturn. So with MIMI, Cassini was able to determine the charged particle populations of Saturn's magnetosphere, as well as how the magnetosphere interacts with Saturn's solar wind, and also how it affects Saturn's rings and moons. There was also something else on board the Cassini. 
a European traveler. Well, not a human one. It was a probe built by the European Space Agency called Huygens Probe. The probe landed on Titan, Saturn's largest moon, on January 14, 2005. What you're hearing now is Huygens' descent to Titan's surface. A scientist at NASA decided to add representational sound effects to dramatize certain elements of the probe's readings as it descended. This squelched whirling sound represents the signal strength between Huygens' probe and Cassini. This sweeping frequency that seems to be fluctuating between a higher and lower frequency represents the rate of the probe's rotation as it descends. These mid-frequency chimes are heard each time that the Huygens probe receives photometry data. And these higher nasally chimes are heard each time spectra data is received. Now, these little high chimes are probably of most importance to the listeners. They represent the multi-angle photos being taken by the probe in various resolutions. You can bask in the glory of these images by using a simple web search like Huygens Probe Landing Photos. This descent lasted two hours, but the probe's actual lifespan on the surface of Titan was even less than that. For 72 minutes, the probe gleaned every possible bit of science that it could, relaying it back to Cassini before its short-term battery supply died, leaving it to remain as a token from Earth as Cassini steered toward its next mission. While it seems like a short time lived on Titan's surface, the visit by Huygens' probe was the first and only so far earthly landing on an astronomical body in our outer solar system. Because of this collaboration with the European Space Agency and NASA, we got a profile of Titan's atmosphere, we made measurements of its super-rotating winds, and we even heard a mysterious frequency. Well, mysterious at first. Although we did not detect any thunderstorms on Titan's atmosphere, we detected an ELF signal at a frequency around 36 hertz. Huygens detected a lower ionospheric layer between 140 kilometers and 40 kilometers, with an electrical conductivity peaking near 60 kilometers. Scientists observing the data propose that Titan's atmosphere behaves like a giant electrical circuit. The current is generated when the ionosphere interacts with the magnetosphere. What reflects the radio signals is what is believed to be an ocean of water and ammonia, which is 55 to 80 kilometers under Titan's icy crust. Before the finding, we had no clue that there might be a subsurface ocean on Titan. Moving onward, Cassini flew by Venus twice, past the Earth's moon, and through the asteroid belt, where it got to exercise its cosmic dust analyzer. Later in 2001, the craft used Jupiter's gravity as a slingshot to propel it forward toward its mission to Saturn. During this six-month slingshot flyby, Cassini was able to test more of its science equipment by observing the gas giant. The spacecraft took over 26,000 photos of Jupiter and its moons. An amazing portrait of Jupiter was pieced together with these images, which can be viewed on Cassini's grand finale webpage at nasa.gov.
October 31st, 2002. Cassini finally tested its cameras on an approaching Saturn from 177 million miles away. This was a moment of pause, when Cassini took a deep breath, stretched its equipment, and prepared to reach its mission goal, to study Saturn and its satellites. It has been 20 years since Cassini started its mission at Cape Canaveral. Initially, Cassini's mission had a four-year lifespan, but it was extended twice. Before Cassini's trip to Saturn, we knew that Saturn had 18 moons. While Cassini was traveling, observers on Earth found another 13 moons, and the spacecraft itself found another three in its first seven years of traveling, Metheny, Palene, and Polydeuses. Now the count is up to 63, 53 of which has been named. With Cassini, we were actually able to witness the birth of a new moon of Saturn, Peggy. Noticed as a slight disturbance on the outer edge of its A-ring, the observations of the birth of Peggy gave us a new angle for understanding how the icy moons of Saturn like Titan and Enceladus were formed. This in turn helps us to understand the forming of moons and planets in and outside of our own solar system. Earlier, we mentioned a potential ocean under Titan's surface discovered by Huygens' probe. While Huygens' probe was doing its thing, Cassini was peering through the moon's thick, chemically complex atmosphere, which actually contained small amounts of plastic. This hydrocarbonate propylene, which is the same type that's used to make storage containers here on Earth, is created when the sun breaks down the methane in Titan's lakes. Searching past this, Cassini found dunes shaped by winds and those said vast open lakes of methane. This discovery solidifies Titan as the most Earth-like body in our solar system that we currently know of. Cassini also discovered evidence of an ocean under Enceladus's surface. Flying through water vapor emitting from the moon's southern pole, Cassini sampled carbon-based molecules and other measurements that serve as strong evidence for an underground ocean below its surface. This discovery was great enough to be flagged for follow-up space missions. While Cassini did learn a lot about the satellites of Saturn, it also learned a lot about the planet itself. Much of what we learned is that Saturn has quite a few similarities to Earth in how its atmosphere affects its climate and storm patterns. This is because Saturn's axis is tilted 27 degrees. To put that into perspective, Earth's axis is tilted similarly at 23 degrees. When Cassini arrived at Saturn's northern hemisphere, it was greeted by a winter-like blue. Later, it experienced Saturn's spring-like yellow season. But it's not all Earth-like on Saturn. Sometimes Saturn's atmosphere stirs up giant storms that take over the whole globe's sky. These can last over several years. Imagine celebrating several birthdays under the same stormy sky. We don't experience these types of superstorms on Earth because its land is split up between oceans, reaching mountains, and deep valleys. These superstorms on Saturn happen every Saturn year, which is equal to every 30 Earth years. Cassini even witnessed a warm air tornado-like vortex that started in the Earth year 2011 and lasted until 2014. One of the most interesting storms is what seems to be a constant hexagonal-shaped storm on Saturn's North Pole. 
This was first spotted in 1981 by the Voyager mission, but it was later revisited by Cassini when dropping off the Huygens probe. Most theories about why this hexagonal shape forms has to do with jet streams creating the pattern. One recent model formed at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology depicts a storm with jet streams at the cloud level controlling the sharp edges of the shape and the speed of its rotation. After the long journey to Saturn, and after gleaning all of the science it could from its surface, rings, and moons, Cassini is running out of fuel. Because Saturn has many moons that could have conditions suitable for life, we have to protect them from contamination. This will be done when Cassini performs its final nosedive, its plunge into the surface of Saturn. Before it takes its final plunge, Cassini has been taking dives between the planet's surface and its rings. Right now, we are closer to Saturn's surface and rings than ever before. With each dive, Cassini will be mapping Saturn's gravity and magnetic fields. We hope that this will help us solve the mystery of the intensely fast oscillations that we have been detecting in the inner sections of Saturn. With every pass between the planet's surface and its rings, we learn more about the materials within the rings, and it also detects the types of icy particles that are being sucked into Saturn's magnetic field. And of course, it will be taking incredibly close-up photos of Saturn and its rings, and sending them back to us for observation and enjoyment. But even at its end, Cassini will be studying Saturn's surface and relaying information back to us until its very last second of life. This historic moment will happen on September 15th, 2017. The final signal from Cassini to Earth will be received at 12.04 p.m. UTC or 5.04 a.m. PDT. Remember, this was just an overview of the Cassini mission. There is a top 10 list for discoveries from Cassini for every year that it was on its mission. For more information and for further study, visit saturn.jpl.nasa.gov. Well, that's it. If you're listening to this Thursday night on September 14th, then you have a chance to observe the NASA Mission Control Room as they observe the data being received by Cassini as it takes its final plunge into Saturn. Tune in to their YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash NASA JPL forward slash prior to 7 a.m to watch the event live. It is an exciting day to be alive, but more will come in time. Stay tuned to StarQuest Radio. We will soon be available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on our community low-power radio station, Welt 95.7 FM. If you liked what you heard, please like and share it with your friends and family on social media. Find us on iTunes and other services when they're made available, and make sure to rate and review us. This will help us get more community members listening in. The Fort Wayne Astronomical Society and I would like to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next time on StarQuest Radio, and hopefully we can see your face at the observatory on a clear Saturday night. I would also like to give a shout-out to Tirthak Saha. He helped me a great deal with the research that went into this episode. He has a really great blog called The Futurist Archives, which aims to break down complex modern-day innovations for the layperson in fun and relatable ways. You should definitely check out his blog at thefuturistarchives.com. <laughs>